When people think of the Arctic, there is a tendency to think of it merely as an environment, and both a forbidding and fragile environment at that. It is often forgotten that people live there. Around four million people do live inside the Arctic Circle, and about four hundred thousand of them hail from one of the forty or so indigenous peoples of the region. Just as the Arctic's geographical position and geological properties place it in the forefront of conversations around strategy and ecology, so the prominence of indigenous peoples in the region has a global resonance of its own. In this special episode of the Foreign Desk, recorded at the recent Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, we meet representatives of some of the Arctic's indigenous peoples and a few office holders who grapple with the unique challenges of governing in or near the Arctic. Is it helpful to think of the Arctic as something that must be preserved at all costs? Might development in the Arctic actually be the key to its conservation? And are there lessons non-Arctic countries can learn about acknowledging indigenous communities? This is the Foreign Desk. Our ancestors arrived through waters, and they know the Arctic marine ecosystem intimately. How marine mammals migrate, how tides. Change and ebb and flow, and so much knowledge that Inuit hold in the marine ecosystem that is like the basis of our culture. So it is of our great interest to make sure that our marine ecosystem is protected. Our issues that we deal with in the Faroe Islands are the same issues that every country of the world has to tackle, all from climate change to security to democracy to human rights and so on. And that's our approach, and that's why we think the Arctic Circle is a project that is quite a geniality because he breaks down all these hierarchies. Everyone can speak together on every level. Welcome to the Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will be speaking to, among others, the Deputy Prime Minister of the Faroe Islands and the Mayor of Yellowknife. But first, Karina Samali is the Mayor of Luleå, a coastal city in Swedish Lapland. I began by asking her if, given the nature of small and remote Arctic communities, mayors in her region have more influence than they might in other parts of the world. Well, since I only live in the Arctic, <laughs> I can't compare. But yes, I think that uh, mayors are mostly, we take care of our cities. That's like our job. And if we are far away from the capital, we need to do more ourselves. So that is probably something that unites us all around the Arctic. But what's also very, very clear and why we cooperate is because many of the capitals, basically everyone except from Reykjavik, they are outside of the Arctic. And since Arctic is eight countries yeah. and it's in cooperation between the countries, it's between the policies made out of the Arctic for the Arctic. And that is a huge problem right now. And then we think that we as mayors could be one of the keys to solve that because we are actually living in the Arctic and we're locally chosen to represent our own people. So we think that we could and should have a bigger role about making the policies about the Arctic. There are quite a lot of mayors running around this event in Reykjavik this week and we will be meeting many of them. But what kind of things do you talk about? about. 
Well, first of all, we have a network called the Arctic Mayors Forum, and we started only five or six years ago. So right now we're starting up and starting to make strategies about how to cooperate. And that is basically what we're doing. We're spending a whole day together to make the strategies about what's next to come. What we do know is that we have similar challenges and also that we need to be the voice of the local people and not only the mayors, but also the people who live in our city. How can we make sure that their voices are being heard in the policies? That's what we are focusing on right now. And that means that yesterday we had a hackathon with youth from all our cities together with the Gordon Foundation. So I had a girl, Sami girl from Luleå coming to the hackathon, but also from all other members coming in together to make policies. And they were focusing about how to make youth stay in the Arctic. So we're trying to be the voices and help the voices from the locals in the Arctic right now. I was wondering if you thought there was though something emblematic about the situation that Lulia finds itself in for the Arctic as a whole, because if I've done my research right, it has traditionally been a steel town. Yes. And obviously that is not the kind of industry that people are thinking about when they think of the future. How difficult or dramatic a shift in mindset is that going to be for a town which has relied on this, you know, very old school heavy industry to rethink itself as a green and digital place? Well, first of all, we for long thought that the steel was a part of our history. Right now, I know it's a part of our future because what's going on in non-Sweden right now is that the steel industry is leaving coal and going into hydrogen and green hydrogen. And that means that in Sweden, the steel industry is about 10% of our carbon dioxide emissions when they stop using coal. We will save the climate, basically. So right now we have huge investments in new industries, new steel mills, both in Luleå and our neighbor city, Boden, who will make fossil-free steel. And then they need minerals, and we have that in the north, and we also need renewable energy, and that we also have in the north of Sweden. So right now we are going into a massive <laughs> investments in the industry, in the heavy, dirty industry, going into a green industry. Mm. But for long we thought that we were not going to be an industry city, and we are not today. The most common job to have in Luleå is working as a developer in the ITC. Uh, we have a university, and most of our companies actually work with uh, services to uh, companies. So that's our biggest part today. But the industry is very big and it will be bigger in our parts. Over the last year and a half or so, when we've talked about Sweden on the foreign desk, we've talked a lot about Sweden's presumed accession to NATO. And I realise that's a decision that gets taken at a national level. But do you see echoes of it in Luleå? I know you have a Swedish Air Force wing based in the town. You have hosted the US Secretary of State reasonably recently. So does it feel like it makes a difference even where you live? Yes, it does. And it makes a huge difference. The Russian attack on Ukraine is affecting us very, very sincerely in Europe. The energy prices, (laughs) the transportation, but the security situation, of course. And to three years ago, I would never, ever speak for joining NATO. And today I see it as we have to do it. And yes, we're a military city. And our neighbor city is also a military city for the army. So we are very much affected because the defense in Sweden is growing and we need to be much more alert about what's going on. And also with the climate changes in the Arctic, I mean, the Arctic is coming more and more used with the natural resources, but also transportations. And that means that focus is going up north. And as I said, we have minerals, we have renewable energy, and we also have an air force. So of course, I notice what's going on with NATO membership and also the security situation in Europe and the world. That was the mayor of Luleå, Karina Samali. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. 
You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Should we necessarily recoil in horror whenever any exploitation of the Arctic's resources is proposed? Jessica Shadian is the president and CEO of Arctic 360, a think tank which works with Indigenous corporations and northern governments to provide a platform for Canada to participate in global discussions about the Arctic. Here is an excerpt of our conversation in which Jessica detailed some of the biggest misconceptions held about the Arctic when it comes to development. One of the biggest ones is just this notion that somehow we should put the Arctic in a snow globe. And this is coming just off of a session I did this morning on um, strengthening business and trade cooperation in the North American Arctic. There's still a lot of perceptions that Northerners themselves don't want development, and that's a misconception. So when it comes then to investment and financial institutions, institutional investors especially, and trying to drive some private sector money, like to build great public-private partnerships for, let's say, massive infrastructure projects, but even in the mining space, it becomes difficult because people think it's a region that needs to just be protected. Mm -hmm. And so they should boycott it rather than invest in it. And also that the northerners themselves are against development. And so it creates a difficult terrain to attract business and to grow business and and to grow the region and its economic prosperity. It's a difficult case to make, isn't it? Because you're right, there is this about the Arctic, like few other places in the world, this reflexive horror descends if you suggest any kind of development at all. Exactly. And I think what also is maybe lost on a lot of international audiences is that, like in the Canadian North, we have five land claims agreements. So we, when people talk about, well, especially when in terms of mining, critical mineral mining is a very different space than mining of, of the past, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not the dinosaur it used to be. And so now everything is about innovation and creating all these crazy ways to leave zero footprint, which is real. But also there's so many people who say, well, but what about the people and how, because in the past, miners would come in or other industries would come in and, you know, just take the resources and leave and and not benefit the communities and even hurt the communities themselves, which is not the case. Now, a lot of the northern communities want and are very interested in being part of the potential critical mineral sector that Canada has, and especially in its north. And the discussion now in Canada is about equity ownership. And so there's no like, oh, we have to worry about like consultation or anything like that. It's just it's moved far beyond that. Now they're it's the way it is in terms of in can- all through Canada with Indigenous communities when it's, you know, they've got a lot of the resources and, and it's about everyone making it a win-win situation. That was Jessica Shadian from Arctic 360. To hear more of our conversation, download episode 2257 of The Globalist, first broadcast on October 26th. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. If we are, as we should be, concerned with reaching a mutually beneficial accommodation with our environments, it would appear to make obvious sense to listen to the people who have been living in them longest. Lisa Kapurkuluk is the president of the Inuit Circumpolar Council Canada. She began by explaining to me what the role of the ICC is. Inuit Circumpolar Council was created back in 1977 and brought together Inuit who live across different jurisdictional boundaries. Mm. So in the United States, Alaska, in Chukotka, Russia, in Canada, and in Greenland. And the idea was to unite Inuit so that they may have one voice. 
that bring issues of common concern to international spaces. So we are an international organization composed of these four different parties. And each of these four different parties are composed of representatives from each country. So ICC Canada, for example, is composed of a board of directors. Then each of these parties, president and vice president, compose the executive council, which is the international Inuit Circumpolar Council. So we've been working since many decades bringing the Inuit voice to climate conferences to be part of these decision-making processes. So, for example, the Paris Agreement came out of the COP15, and we were among other Indigenous peoples influencing how Indigenous people would have a voice within the United Nations Framework Convention on climate change. There's something there I was wondering about because obviously the indigenous peoples of the Arctic have been very much at the sharp end of climate change and therefore have an obvious concern with it. But as there's been more understanding in recent decades of climate change, has there been a chance for indigenous peoples to make their their wider case more heard, that you are being listened to maybe more about other things as well as climate change? Absolutely. So not only is our international work related to climate change, and that's been a topic for decades, Mm. and we were bringing that message, our Inuit leaders were bringing that message of... Let's keep and protect the Arctic because it's a barometer for the rest of the world. But we also, more recently, we're doing work at the International Maritime Organization, which is based out of London. And I've been going there for a few years now to also be part of the table, bringing our issues of concern around protection of the Arctic marine environment, the marine ecosystem, to which we as Inuit are closely connected to. Our ancestors arrived through waters Mm. and, and they know the Arctic marine ecosystem intimately, how marine mammals migrate, how tides change and ebb and flow, which marine mammals come and go, when and where, and so much knowledge that Inuit hold in the marine ecosystem that is like the basis of our culture. So it is of our great interest to make sure that our marine ecosystem is protected. So therefore, we want to ensure through the International Maritime Organization that underwater noise is reduced, that black carbon emissions are prevented, that greenhouse gas emissions also are stopped, that ships become more sustainable and use clean energy, but that they take into account Inuit communities and Inuit knowledge, Indigenous knowledge, where decisions are being made. I did want to ask about that issue on shipping noise, because I know know it's something you've been working on recently. But is that representative of the kind of issues that the ICC work on, that you're able to bring your specific understanding and your specific knowledge to bear on one of these issues? Yes, it is. As a concrete example, Mm. I can talk about 
Inuit community concerns about narwhals in the community of Mitsimatalik, which is also known as Pond Inlet in Nunavut, Canada. And the increase of ships passing through that community has directly impacted how narwhals are moving in that particular area. Hunters have observed that their population declined and that they had also moved to different area than the ones that Inuit had so long been used to seeing them. Now, these animals are very important for the community and other communities too, as they rely on them to sustain the communities, to feed their families. And when you cannot practice an activity that you've been doing for decades, even hundreds of years, your knowledge of that particular area of expertise changes. Now, if you cannot transfer that knowledge to your younger children, then that is an art that is lost, that can be lost, Mm. and even the language around it can be lost. So that's what I mean when I say it's a foundation of our culture and our knowledge. So that transfer of knowledge is really important. And the need to protect the narwhal from the impacts of shipping is very important. You mentioned earlier that the Inuit nation is spread across several modern countries, one of them including Russia. And obviously, a big theme of this event has been people trying to figure out how the Arctic nations are going to interact with each other now that most people have stopped interacting with Russia for obvious reasons. But within the the Inuit world, is there still as much communication as there ever was among the Inuits, including those in, in Chukotka in Russia? Well, at this time, it's become very difficult to maintain mm. communications with them. What I can say is that at Inuit Circumpolar Council, we've been having executive council meetings you know, where we make decisions on actions and projects that we do. Our Chukotka members have been able to participate with us virtually. Mm. Yes, but not in person. So we're grateful for that, to be able to have this continued type of communication with them because there are issues that they work on, for example, preservation of their language and their culture and their stories through books that they share with us. That was Lisa Kapurkuluk, the president of Inuit Circumpolar Council Canada. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. There is nowhere warming faster than the Arctic and nowhere, therefore, having to learn faster about grappling with the consequences of climate change. Rebecca Alty is the mayor of Yellowknife in Canada's Northwest Territories, a town which suffered dreadful wildfires during the tail end of last summer, forcing the evacuation of almost all of Yellowknife's 20,000 residents. I began by asking the mayor how things were two months on from the fire. Yeah, so it's, I think, day by day feeling more and more normal. If you take a look at kind of disaster recovery, it can take up to 18 months for things to feel, you know, quote unquote normal. Just like COVID, you know, the official COVID pandemic, I think, was over April 1st, 2022 in Yellowknife. But it's not like, boom, okay, we're back to feeling like it's 2019. So for the fires, I, I know talking to small businesses in particular, they're feeling quite drained and They're still trying to cover the debts from COVID and now having the three weeks away during the evacuation. 
it's hard to to come back and be energized and try to get customers back in. And then a lot of the fall activities were kind of slow to begin and stuff that, you know, you might look forward to, like the annual dance gala is now going to be pushed back to February. And, you know, those are important things for us to come back and feel like a community and, again, to start to recover. So, And then on the municipal side, of course, we've got to sort through invoices from the fires and start doing all that accounting so that we can try to recover some of the money from the federal government. So day by day, again, feeling a little bit more normal. I think COVID's quite a good analogy for a situation like that, because I can see that a fire moves more swiftly. But there's still that thing where you, I guess you're kind of vaguely aware that this thing is marching towards you and sort of hope it won't arrive. And then it does. And then there's that moment in any crisis where you can't pretend it's not happening anymore. I'm just wondering for you as mayor, was there a particular moment that it just struck you, we are actually going to have to evacuate? Yeah. And I think the COVID example, since so many listeners would be familiar with it, I I was mayor during COVID as well, and I saw the similarities. It was scary the Wednesday when the evacuation order was given. It was coming, but maybe it won't come. And then Wednesday is like, yep, nope, we've got to evacuate. And then the, the Thursday and Friday, the evacuation and just not knowing what's going to happen. You know, could be bad or or maybe it won't you know reach our boundaries so that period of uncertainty and and anxiety was there just like those first few days in March when the pandemic was called the first few days as well similar to COVID it was a lot of coming together and helping one another out and kind of you know we're all in this together and let's try to help each other through this the best we can then you kind of get into that dip of this is awful. I hate it. I want to go back. I just want life to be normal again. And then, you know, okay, the relief of, I know a date now, and now I can start, you know, working towards coming back. And and then it's that, yeah, that period that I was talking about that now, hmm, I'm back. Life's not feeling quite normal, but getting through it. So... But prior to both those crises, is there anything you can do as a mayor to prepare yourself for that? Was it something you ever gave much thought to, sort of whether just thinking about it yourself or establishing contingency plans like what happens if, what do we do, and how do I respond? We do have our emergency plan, which outlines, you know, the roles and responsibilities. And so we'd been briefed on that and I'd read my part of the the plan. But I don't think until you actually live it that you can start to even uh, we had a a group called the Canada Task Force 2. And so it's a group of subject matter experts in the field that came and provided assistance to our, our emergency operations center. So it was basically pairing our staff member with a subject matter expert to help guide them through the emergency. And again, you read the plan, but there's stuff like make sure you have lots of hand sanitizer around the building because the last thing you want to do is somebody to give everybody the flu and wipe out our whole team that's (laughs) trying to deal with this emergency. So unfortunately that happened in another community. So they were able to kind of like bring that experience. So there is those plans, but it's that lived experience. But yeah, to anybody listening, I think COVID fires for us is really showing the need to be prepared individually. And then also at the government level, you know, 
we're going to talk about budget 2024 and there is going to be more discussion this year than previous years on on the need for emergency management and and what does investing in that look like with the experience with the fire in particular does that strike you potentially as a warning to other towns not just in Canada but elsewhere in the high north because when you think of the hazards likeliest to beset a town that far north, you don't instantly think of wildfires, and it's probably not something an awful lot of the Nordic nations spend much time thinking about. Should they? Yeah. So there were two panels yesterday, one I was participating in, and both sessions were jam-packed. And so I think it really highlighted to folks the need to come and learn more and you know, talking to somebody after just in the coffee area and she's like, oh, you know, what are you here for? And it's like, oh, you know, talking about fires. And she's like, that happens in the Arctic? <laughs> and it's like, yep, yeah. The other thing that, you know, there's certain areas where it's more like uh, brush, like grass versus the trees. And of course, our trees look different than trees in the southern parts of Canada with the forest fires. They can look different, but... The small northern remote and indigenous communities are heavily impacted by fires. And Yellowknife's no no stranger to forest fires. We we have them a lot, but this was the first time that it came so close and threatened us so much that we had to evacuate. A lot of the wetlands between the fire and Yellowknife were actually dry this year. Mm. And so in previous years, we would have considered them an asset that they would be there to kind of slow the fire down. This year, when they were dry, they were almost worse for the fire because they'd never been impacted by a fire. So again, it's talk about fuel sources. It's just more of a fuel source for the fire to continue. So it's that changing conditions and how do we respond that it's challenging the you know million billion dollar question that climate change poses today and into the future. But was there a lesson there, do you think, in local leadership and, and how to keep a community focused on a particular goal? Because obviously there's the obvious thing of we need to save our town in the short term. But what I'm frantically trying to do here is extrapolate that into the same kind of leadership and cohesiveness needed to save our planet in the long term. Do you think there is an overlap there? Yeah, and I I always encourage, particularly after the fires, to not get the tunnel vision and only focus on how can we prepare for the next fire because our next emergency might not be a fire. So it is about how do we work together towards common goals? How do we prepare better? You know, even from looking at our building bylaws, should we have it that you can only have a metal roof? And how can we kill multiple birds with one stone if it is climate change and fires and flood prevention that mitigation and adaptation measures? How can we do more of those? That was Rebecca Alty, the mayor of Yellowknife. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. A gathering theme of Arctic discourse is the language or languages in which it is conducted as increasingly confident Indigenous voices speak up. I was joined by Kiviok Luvstrom, chair of the Greenland Human Rights Council. I began by asking her what the council's biggest priorities currently are. Well, before I do that, I would like to introduce what the Human Rights Council actually is, what Mm. we're able to do because there are a lot of restrictions. The Human Rights Council of Greenland has existed since 2013, and what we're supposed to do, as the name 
suggest we are to counsel the government and other decision-making bodies when it comes to human rights issues in Greenland. And what we have had a trouble with the first eight years was that we almost had no funding. So the secretariat was non-existing. There was no secretariat. And all the board members of the council were actually volunteers. I am a volunteer. I do not get paid to do what I do. So uh, the activity level was not that high because people had to prioritize their own living wages and salaries. So when the former chair, Sao Alsvi, managed to lobby for a secretariat together with a lot of the former board members. We finally got a secretariat in 2022, and that's why suddenly we were so visible. We had the energy, we had the, we always had the drive, but we didn't have the resources to be able to reach out to our own peoples. Because for us, the most important thing was to educate the citizens of Greenland of their rights and what they pertain. We have had a really strong children's rights organization in Greenland for many years. It's one year older than the Human Rights Council. (laughs) And they have been so good that people only know about children's rights. They don't really know about their own rights as human beings, as adults. What kind of misapprehensions or misunderstandings are there? What rights do Greenlanders not understand that they have? Well, you have to understand to some level that for many years we were used to being oppressed or not having our rights upheld. So we thought that that was the normal, Mm. that that was the law. And what many people knew was the law wasn't fair, but they didn't realize that maybe the law was breaking human rights. So what we have been doing is educating people about what kind of human rights that are implemented in Greenland are supposed to be implemented in Greenland and what we can do to ensure that maybe our governments or the people who are responsible can make it happen. So since that started, we already immediately saw a lot of people reaching out and talking about, have anyone else experienced something similar on Facebook? What you have to understand, Facebook is very different in Greenland. We use it in a different way than I see in Western world. 99% of the population who is over 13 years old, i.e. able to use Facebook, actually has an active Facebook account that we use to communicate with each other. So this is the forum where people try to like stick a finger in the mud and go Mm -hmm. like, so how do you guys feel about this? And then suddenly there'll be 200 likes or 300 likes. Oh, thousands. And you have to realize for us, we're only 57. Yeah, I was just going to say, (laughs) a few hundred likes in Greenland is a pretty big deal, right? Exactly. That's a huge percentage of our population. So for us, being able to create an awareness and make a foundation for a dialogue where people may be finally find the courage to say out loud, I was treated badly. And now, not only I was treated badly, but it was against my rights as a human being. So are you seeing a, like a, a general shift, do you think, in Greenlandic consciousness? And, and, and is that tied up with a renewed interest in Greenlandic identity? I think there's a renewed interest in Greenlandic identity from the outside. We mm. have always been interested in ourselves, <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's our country, it's our language, it's our culture. But what I have seen is that, for example, when we talk about our need or want for independence that the media talk about the youth. They like to say that it's the youth rebelling against Denmark. 
And we have data that shows that it's been ongoing for almost a hundred years that shows that we wanted independence. We wanted to be equal to Danes, not be a part of Denmark. But the Danish records say the opposite. But if you can read and write Greenlandic like I can as a historian, you can suddenly see that the historians who wrote our history kind of whitewashed it. Mm. So we have oral history in our country. We talk about what has happened, what has been happening, what is still happening amongst each other when we meet. You will recognize it. It's like when you go, oh, did you hear about this? Oh, (laughs) yeah, I heard that. Oh, my goodness, yes. And so we have not lost that history. We remember it, even though it's not written in our Danishly written history books. So that's why there's a huge schism between our consciousness and what we know and our identity as we know it in Greenland and what the Danish know about us and as a consequence also what the rest of the world knows about us. So that is what we're also taking a stand against at the same time as we are finally being allowed to speak out loud about our trauma, what has been ongoing for decades, and being taken seriously by the rest of the world. I did want to ask just finally about the importance of language, because I I know it is something you are personally really concerned with. And I was interested in that idea about what it means when your own history is largely written in someone else's language, because obviously different languages contain different ways of thinking uh, as well, which is why I'm always very envious of people who can speak more than one. But are you seeing an expansion of interest in the Greenlandic language among Greenlanders? And is that helping the kind of conversations you're talking about? That's a funny question, because if you look at anywhere else but the capital, we speak Greenlandic. Mm. It is our language. And then you come to the capital and you see the you that have cheaper internet, for example. They speak English, Spanish, Korean, Japanese, and Greenlandic. But just like the rest of the kids in the rest of the world who are able to have access, they kind of are not that great at these languages. They can have a conversation with you to some extent, but they cannot read or write in a comprehensive manner. And you see how it affects their own language as well, how they become weaker at the written and reading of Greenlandic and even sometimes speaking it on a maybe higher level. I myself lost my own language when I was six years old when I started school. Focus was on Danish because we all knew and we still know, unfortunately to this day, if you want to make it in life, you have to be fluent in Danish. So my parents talked to me in Danish at home and at school I talked Danish with my friends and my teachers. And when I was 11, when we moved to Northern Greenland, I couldn't speak Greenlandic. And um, what I will now say, it's trigger warning, I guess. Uh, 11 years old and kids my own age came to me and said, you do not deserve to live. You are not a real Greenlandic person. And after saying that to me in Greenlandic, the main bully then turned to me like fully in my face and said it in Danish as well and ended it with, do you understand? Is this that thing, though, of the colonised people, if you like? They kind of end up often internalising the colonizers' view of them and their country. And I guess language is a way of making that happen. Not only that, because it is still a system of suppression. It is still working. Like I told you, we need to be fluent in Danish 
to be mm. taken seriously in the rest of the world. I cannot take an education over high school level, not even high school level. I have to be able to speak fluent Danish or very good at Danish to be able to get to a gymnasium in Greenland or Denmark. And, oh, if you're good at Greenland, that's a plus two, but it's not important. And it's so horrifying to realize that this is happening in your own country. So I feel extremely privileged to be teaching, to be lecturing in Greenlandic mm. and to see the huge difference in attendance and in grades and in motivation amongst the students. And that is something that people take for granted in the rest of the world, at least in the Western world, that you're able to go through your whole education and get a job and do all of it in your own language. And it seems normal to you, maybe. But for us, it has never been normal because suppression of our language has become normalized. The access to higher paying salaries are also restricted to people who, in some people's eyes, are Danified. And then we have had that conversation of, yes, I can speak Danish, but I'm still Greenlandic. And then this has evolved It's a heated debate in Greenland, so it is ongoing, but it used to be extremely toxic and taking a lot of lives. And now it has come to a point where we're healing it and where we're trying to figure out, okay, unfortunately it is all in Danish, but how can we ensure that Greenland is included so we can do two at the same time to start with maybe and then later on be able to do it in our own language. So we're slowly getting there and the university is also changing the way because we now have Greenlandic speaking lecturers available. We didn't have that before. So it also takes time to ensure the education of the people who have to take over. That was Kiviok Luvstrom, chair of the Greenland Human Rights Council. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Finally, on today's show, the day before proceedings kicked off at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, we met Hogni Hoytal, the Deputy Prime Minister of the Faroe Islands, at his hotel room across the street from the conference venue, the Harper Concert Centre. Hogni Hoytal also serves as the Faroe's Minister for Foreign Affairs and Trade. I began by asking how important an event like the Arctic Circle Assembly is for a small country like the Faroes. Well, we find the Arctic Circle a, a special concept because, in my opinion, this is the only event where you actually have abolished all the hierarchy of states and NGOs and so on. So everyone can speak at the same level and can have their own voice. And for the Faroe Islands, we don't see ourselves as a small nation. Mm-hmm. We see ourselves as a large ocean nation situated exactly in the middle of the North Atlantic part of the Arctic and also the gateway to the Arctic. So all the issues of the Arctic, they are, of course, the global issues. So our approach to this is this is not only a chance for us to have our voices heard, but to take part in all the cooperation that is needed in order to keep the Arctic as a low-tension, prosperous region based upon preserving the natural resources, tackling the climate change, cooperating on all levels between the peoples of the Arctic. I usually say that often when you speak about the Arctic, you forget the people who are actually living here. Mm. (laughs) And we have in the Faroe Islands, we have in Iceland, we have in Greenland, partly in other places around the Arctic, we have functioning democracies. We are almost an own state. Iceland is also an example for us, how you can manage the world to have your own democracy and take part in all international agreements. 
So our approach is to use this Arctic Circle to have as much cooperation and focus on international cooperation on all these global issues where the Arctic is one of the best examples of how we can tackle them in the world today. You're at this event, obviously, as the Deputy Prime Minister, but also the Foreign Minister of the Faroe Islands. And in that role in particular, I was wondering, not just at this event, but generally, how much room for independent manoeuvre do you have? Because, of course, the Faroe's foreign and defence policy is handled by Denmark. Partly, yes. To speak quite frankly, we have for many years, also because of historic coincidence, Denmark joined the EU we stayed outside, also in order to preserve our own national resource, living resource of the sea. So Denmark has accepted gradually that we actually almost have our own foreign policy, though it still formally is said that Denmark is one kingdom with the sole foreign policy, but that's not the reality today. We cooperate on all issues that we have the full powers on, and that's fisheries, that's climate, that is uh, trade. So we trade agreements with other countries, we have fisheries agreement, we try to cooperate on all international levels that is connected to the global issues of natural resources, of climate change, cultural cooperation and so on. So we are gradually almost becoming also independent in foreign policy, except for that formally we are not accepted fully. Take an example, security policy. The military dimension, unfortunately, is again getting a a bigger issue today in the Arctic, also because of the illegal war of Russia and Ukraine and so on. So there is a higher presence now of NATO in our waters. We are in the middle of this. We usually talk about the so-called G-I-U-K gap. I don't know if you have heard that concept. That's uh, mainly focused on surveillance, air surveillance and surveillance of activity in our area. The Faroe Islands are actually the middle of this. So now we are debating building a new radar in the Faroe Islands, which in former times was a Danish prerogative. Mm. But we say, well, we will try to do this ourselves. And we will communicate directly with NATO, with the US, with the UK, and all these powers around and neighboring countries around the Arctic and the North Atlantic. So we have said, as you have often heard on this Arctic Circle, nothing about us without us. So if we want to deal with the issues, also security issues, you have to deal directly with us. And Denmark's, I can say, even though there are some conflicts, accepts it gradually, that we can also communicate directly with with states and with NATO and with international corporations. How significant, though, are such conflicts as you have with Denmark? I know the party you lead, Republic, does favour full Faroese independence, but where are the points of disagreement right now? We understand that Denmark still has a concept of that they are, also in historic times, a big player in the Arctic and Mm. so on. So they have had their interest. They have used the Faroe Islands region also as an as a card or as an asset when they deal with other in their foreign policy we understand that also for my party the idea of independence is not an idea of nationalism it's an idea of how to cooperate on an equal level in the world it's about getting access to all the international fora that is needed even more today than ever so for us independence is the way to be a reliable partner to other countries to the UN and to all these international bodies also operating in our area. And Denmark accepts this also because we have almost become economically independent by our own choices. Formerly we had a huge subsidy from Denmark, we have reduced that. And we have taken over all powers that we can on all matters that used to be domestic, trade policy, uh, fiscal policy and so on. So we have gradually taken 
almost full powers in foreign policy or and in international relations regarding all the issues of the day. Take, for instance, climate change, energy questions. That's also our sole power in the Faroe Islands. So, of course, we have to get access to these forests in order not only to cooperate, but also to take our responsibility of what needs to be done in the world today. But do you think within that broadly cooperative setup that you alluded to of the countries in this part of the world, there are concerns peculiar or particular to the Faroe Islands that nobody else has? No, I, we see the Faroe Islands as an equal partner in the world. Our issues that we deal with in the Faroe Islands are the same issues that every country of the world has to tackle, all from climate change to security to democracy to human rights and so on. And that's our approach. And that's why we think the Arctic Circle is a, it's a project that is quite a geniality because he breaks down all these hierarchies. Everyone can speak together on, on every level. And we can have representatives from the so-called indigenous peoples. They can have the same stage as the president of the U.S. in theory. So I think that's the right approach. We have to cooperate on all these levels and to break down these hierarchies because we are again in the world today in a, in a state where... International law is breaking down, international cooperation is breaking down because of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, and we see what happened in Israel today. So our interest is to have the same approach that the Arctic Circle is. We have to speak together on all these levels and focus on international agreements, regional cooperation based upon international law, as we have done on all fisheries issues. It was a great step forward for the Faroe Islands that the UN law, law of the seas was implemented. Now we can manage our own national resources, we can make deals with other countries, and we have done so. And our, our main focus is that we are always a reliable partner. We want international, bilateral, multilateral agreements on every issue regarding our area. That's why the Arctic Circle is a good forum. I do have one final question about access to international fora, which I know will be a particular concern to Monocle Radio's listeners, and this yeah. is the idea that the Faroe Islands will have its own Eurovision entry. Denmark, <laughs> Denmark was, of course, represented by a Faroese yes, uh, yes. this year. But genuinely, as the leader of a pro-independence party, how important are just those little steps in establishing a separate identity? Those are important also because they connect us to the world and every step that we have taken towards independence has been a success because we develop from taking part of international cooperation and we can give our small or bigger part to this. So again, Eurovision, you can take sport where we on some areas are fully independent but are not acknowledged to take part in Olympic Games because they say this is only for sovereign states. So we are always dealing with this reality that still the world is ruled basically by the sovereign states, but we are trying to get there. And also we would like to represent ourselves in the Eurovision, but still the approach has been, well, it's only still for independent states. But we will, we will push and we will push and we will push. We have done so in football and handball and so on, and, and it's been a great success because we develop by it. The world comes to the Faroe Islands and we get into the world. That's the basic, simple idea. That was Hogni Hoital, the Deputy Prime Minister of the Faroe Islands. 
And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also to Matilda Raffins-Dottir and all the team at the Arctic Circle Assembly. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.